conversation is totally predictable. They're like a deranged child. Always talk of killing, revenge, and destruction. Thank you for downloading the Track One podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Jason. Today we're going to look at Eric Sayward's novelisation of his Peter Davison Dalek story, Resurrection of the Daleks. Um, I know you were saying this is quite an important story for you, Jason. I started watching Doctor Who on PBS in New York in the fall of 1984, and I figured out later that the very first episode that I would have watched was Time Flight Part 1, which coincidentally aired on November the 23rd. It took me a couple of episodes to get into things. It was really Arc of Infinity where I started to become hooked. So, apart from the one Dalek scene in The Five Doctors, Resurrection of the Daleks would have been my very first Dalek story. And for an 11-year-old boy, there's a lot to love about Resurrection of the Daleks. Mm -hmm. So for years, I've considered it one of my favorites. Of course, then eight years later... In 1992, I discovered the internet, and I discovered that I was perhaps the only person who felt that way. (laughs) But I still really enjoy the story, and I've seen it multiple times on PBS reruns, and then VHS, and then DVD. So I like the story. And come to find out, I think I like the story a little bit more than Eric Sayward himself. Yeah, that that wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of action in it, isn't there? It's it's a really pacey story. Um, there's uh, there's some really cool, memorable stuff. I think probably I saw it when I was a kid when we had the the repeats in the '90s over here on uh, a satellite channel called UK Gold. Um, and the bit I found really memorable was when the character um, has his face melted when he turns around. That was a horrifying, horrifying scene. In fact, it yeah. was so horrifying they didn't even put it in the Sayward adaptation. But we'll get to that. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I think the two most memorable bits for me from the TV show um, are the, the the guy who gets his face melted, uh, and of course what everybody says probably is the the famous line that that Stein has <laughs> when he's battling his Dalek conditioning, and neither of those things made it into the book. And the third line from the TV episode that made a big impression on me because at eleven years old I had not yet watched a lot of action adventure movies. So I didn't yet grasp the fine art of the cynical death line. So when Colonel Archer meets the two policemen and he thinks they're going to rescue him, he goes, gentlemen, you saved my life. And of course, those are his very last words. When I was 11, that was a very, very clever line. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's not in the novelization at all. No, it isn't, is it? No. Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a shame as well. But the other thing about the TV story that really grabbed my imagination... I'd only been a fan for probably about 30 days at that point. And I had started to look at some of the novelizations that my friends had, but I had never seen pictures of most of the companions. So when the doctor is on the table having his mind duplicated and you see all the companions except for Leela, that was huge for me. Plus, it was the first time I'd ever seen pictures of the first doctor or the second doctor. Yeah. Yeah, and that's something that... The original first doctor. Yeah, something that J&T brought in sort of every year at some point, didn't it? Because you had it in Earthshock in, in season 19. Um, you have it when uh, Tom Baker's regeneration scene, the end of season 18. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's one of those sort of uh, hallmarks that he brings into it, isn't it? 
And Stephen Moffat would later do that almost every story. Yeah, I did. During the uh, Matt Smith season. Yeah, I think in the in the new series, you didn't really see it until. Um, ah, my mind's gone blank. The the, the Cybermen in Victoria, London. Uh, the next Doctor, wasn't it? Yeah. The next Doctor. Yes. Yeah, I think that's the first time you saw it in the new series. Um, but the uh, the eleventh hour is probably one of my favourite examples of that. Where you've got the eleventh Doctor, he's putting his new costume on behind the projection uh, of, of all the uh, the previous Doctors, and then he steps through it. Uh, I think that's that's probably my favourite example of uh, of that kind of montage. My original thought is that William Hartnell's face was shown so many times during Matt Smith's first season that when the Pandora opened. I thought the first Doctor was going to be inside. <laughs> I had to wait several years until twice upon a time, but I finally got my wish. Yeah, yeah, because he's got a, is it a library card or something in, in Vampires of Venice as well, doesn't he? Which has still got the first Doctor's face on it. Oh, that's right, that's right. Yeah. So, Resurrection of the Daleks as an 11-year-old brand-new fan was a terrific way to see all the old faces. yeah. I l- this was two years before William Hartnell package came to PBS, so this is your first chance to see Ben or Polly or Dodo. Probably the first time that I saw Ian and Barbara as well. Yeah, and uh, especially sort of uh, Ben and Polly, the, the Dodo. There's so few stories that remain as well, aren't they? Uh, so any little bit he gets quite tantalising. Right, the original PBS Hartnell and Trouton package only had the War Machines. Hmm. So even for years, you'd only ever see the same one story over and over again. So no no gunfighters, no the Ark, anything like that? They had the gunfighters, but that was just uh, Dodo and Steven. Yeah, yeah. It was the 17 complete Hartnell stories, so Unearthly Child, Through the War Machines. And then at the time, it was only five Trouton stories, all from season six. That was before they discovered... Web of Fear and Enemy of the World and especially Tomb of the Cybermen. Yeah. So you weren't seeing a whole lot of Tratton on PBS when you were growing up in the States. I think the uh, the other thing from Resurrection of the Daleks, which uh, you kind of see the, the photos are doing the rounds on Twitter and things, the, the shoot that the Radio Times did, um, that really, really cool shot where they've got the Dalek in the foreground and Peter Davison's doctor's just kind of coming out of a, a doorway, um, as though he's just kind of spotted the Dalek and he's uh, he's you know going to try and sneak past it or something. Um, I think that's uh, an excellent photo shoot. There's a, there's a couple of shots from that that just make the episode look really really epic and cool. And speaking of epic and cool, when I first saw Resurrection on PBS, it was being aired as a four part story. And I think in the UK, you've only ever seen it as a two-part story. Is that correct? Um, I'm not sure. The DVD that I've got, it's, it's cut into four parts. Uh, I don't... The DVD that was released in the States had two versions, I believe. The two-part version and the four-part. But for the four-part version, the cliffhangers are in different places than I remembered as a kid. Right. Yeah, they, they could have moved those. Uh, I'm not sure if, if the DVD maybe does have both versions. I just... Um, shoved it in and pressed play and it came the four part version came on uh, but I've only got the I think a special edition came out afterwards which I never got I've still got the, the original release of that so it could have been an option on the later one right I didn't even know that it was a transmitted as a two part story until 
years later. I just took it for granted as a four-parter. And it's interesting because Sayward for the novelization kind of ignores the cliffhangers altogether. Mm. To the extent that they're there, they're all buried in mid-chapter, which is quite different from how Terrence Six did things when he was writing novelizations, when everything was structured around where the cliffhangers were. Yeah, yeah he, doesn't, he doesn't go for that at all, does he? Yeah, and I think... And the one moment for, the, for what would have been the part one cliffhanger in the UK or the part two cliffhanger in the US, which is halfway through the story, Stayward puts that two-thirds of the way through the book, and it's in the middle of a sentence, so you blink and you miss it. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it was uh, it was originally in that format in the UK because uh, coverage of the Olympics was going to sort of interfere with um, uh, with a four part run, um, but it kind of did so well in the ratings uh, that uh, that's why they adopted it for the next season for the forty five minute format. But at least Resurrection was written as a four part story, so you have cliffhangers where part one should end and where part three should mm-hmm. end. I'm pretty sure I've told you this during our offline conversations, but when season 22 first started airing in the U.S., they chopped it up into four and six-part stories, but they put arbitrary cliffhangers because those stories were not meant with a cliffhanger halfway through the first 45 minutes. So the most famous example of that is what should be part three of The Two Doctors. So it's part two of the original version and part three of six of the U.S. release. It's the, can you show us to this hacienda? Of course, it is this way. And then the electronic music jumps up. (laughs) You're you're sitting there in 1986 and you're going, what is going on? What is happening to my show? So at least in Resurrection, the arbitrary cliffhangers make a little more sense than the hacienda of doom. Yeah, that's not something that was going to keep viewers gripped on the, the, edge, of the, the edge of their seats, was it, until the, the following week? Uh. During the first three years of L.I. Who, the Long Island Doctor Who convention, I did a cliffhangers panel with a couple of different co-hosts. And I would clip my favorite cliffhangers and show them to the audience, and my co-hosts and I would discuss. And the cliffhanger that I was able to find for the U.S. version of Part 3 of The Two Doctors always got yeah. last. Always got major laughs. Brilliant. Uh, so, the, uh, the the novelization of Resurrection of the Alex is the latest in a number of attempts to bring the story to the page. Um, according to Paul Schoons in the foreword to his 1999 novelization of the story he did for the New Zealand fan club, um, which I didn't know about until you pointed it um, pointed out to me uh, about a week ago. Um, he says originally Soward's adaptation was going to form part of the original target run, but there's some kind of disagreement um, over payment to Terry Nation's estate um, between that and, and Sayward. Then he was going to write it for Virgin in the 90s, but it kept getting delayed. And then they suggested that Paul Leonard, who was another sort of New Adventures uh, BBC writer, might take over. Um, but Soward nixed that idea as well. Uh, and then eventually Virgin lost the license about 1996, didn't they, when the TV movie came out and it all went back to BBC books. Uh, so it's, it's it's been a long time coming, really. Um, and then in 1999, as I say, Paul Schoons brought out his version, which I will put a link to in the show notes. Um, so you've read this one. I've, I've been reading a bit of it this week. 
So I was on Rekar's Doctor Who in the early 1990s, and that's when the story first broke that Stayward is going to adapt his own script. We were all very excited. Of course, that never came to pass. But you had the two John Peel stories. You had John Peel novelizing Power of the Daleks and Evil of the Daleks. Uh, two very interesting novelizations. I like Power more than I like Evil, but that's a story for another day. And I dimly remember the Paul Leonard rumor. Paul Leonard's books were very, very good for the New Adventures and Missing Adventures series. But the big knock on Paul Leonard is that his books always had a very rushed ending. And he'd be building up to this lush 400, 500-page plot. And, of course, he had to wrap things up by page 260. So the end of his books were always notorious for collapsing in on themselves. Had he been novelizing the original scripts, he might not have had that problem. So it would have been very nice to see what he could have done. But, of course, that never came to pass. The last time that I did my big major read-through of the novelizations probably about eight or nine years ago, is when I learned about the New, Le- the, the New Zealand Doctor Who fan club versions. So that's when I went to the site and I downloaded all, I think five of them. So I've read them all. And I quite, quite enjoyed Paul Schoon's adaptation of Resurrection. And I have a review of it up on the Doctor Who ratings guide, which I can send you a link to after we record. What I like about the Paul Schoon's version is that, number one, he treats the story very, very seriously. There's no self-mockery, there's no self-parody, which Eric Sayward heavily trades on. Secondly, he understands that there's flaws in the original story, so he restructures the script. He doesn't go off on his own and rewrite the story wholesale, which Sayward kind of does, but he restructures the script. Each chapter takes place in one locale, so the revelation of Davros in the actual TV production of Resurrection is kind of offhanded, it's kind of undramatic. You just see him in the background of a scene and there's no build-up. Stewart fixes that problem in quite a major way for the novelization. Stewart also tries to clean up some of the loose ends of the story. And let's be honest, as much as I like the story, there are plenty of loose ends and things yeah. that don't make sense. One review that I read of the novelization, the new novelization, says that Resurrection is full of one-scene subplots. So that's something that's hard to fix. But Scoons makes a good effort. And Scoons also is writing within the larger Doctor Who canvas. So there's tons of continuity references to other stories. Also, there's references to the Ben Aronovich novelization of Remembrance of the Daleks, which is kind of the gold standard for novelizations. So Schoons treats the story with respect, he tries to make it structurally more interesting, and he builds on years and years of continuity, especially what Ben Aronovich and Virgin Publishing had been doing. So it's a very 1990s book. It helps to have read the new adventures, but I was very impressed with the way that he wrote the book. Now, obviously, I would disagree with some of his prose choices. I think he spends like two paragraphs explaining what a transmat is. We're Doctor Who fans. Yeah. We don't need that explanation. And there are some run-on sentences which rival some of the worst run-on sentences that you'll find in the non-Terrence Dick's dark Target books. But for the most part, it's a really well-intentioned book. And I think it's a worthy adaptation of Resurrection. 
And I don't have the print version, but if I did, it would be on my shelf, uh, right in between Frontios and Planet of Fire. Instead, I have it on my Kindle, so it has quite a place there. Yeah, and that's um, it, it's free to download, so I'll put a link to where you can get that from in the show notes. Um, so I probably read about half of it this week, and obviously reading it in quite uh, closely after the the Eric Seward version. Uh, for me, one of the things that really leapt out was it was just sort of uh, warmer about the characters. I think um, Seward has I get the impression he doesn't really like Turlu. He's he's always describing as a, him as sneering and jeering about things and being much more kind of self-serving. Whereas um, I think the, the Schoons version is uh, he's much more warm about the, the TARDIS crew and, and it, it's more real to, I think, how it was or more true to, to how they were on screen together. Although you've got, um, you've got Turlew's cowardice, um, he's not as a repellent character, I think, as, uh, as maybe Sarah draws him. And, of course, Keegan gets a much better leaving scene in the Scoons version than she does in the Stayward version, who kind of, well, we'll talk yeah. about that at the end. <laughs> yeah, that's that's probably one of the biggest departures, isn't it, in the uh, in the Stayward version? Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, so something um, uh, Pete Lambert, who regular listeners will know from this podcast, he was telling me earlier that he saw Eric Stayward speaking at the Fab Cafe in Manchester a couple of years ago. Uh, so they, they put these these things on every now and again, they, and they've had uh, they've had some really good guests. Um, and at the time, he read out the first chapter of one of his earlier attempts to adapt Resurrection of the Daleks. Uh, and Pete was saying the original version had the Doctor reminiscing about his mum making him a packed lunch for his first day at school, um, which hasn't made it into this version. <laughs> yeah, thankfully so. <laughs> It would slightly, I mean, apart from anything else, it would, it would cut against that sort of, um, the idea you get in the 21st century series of Doctor Who about the, you know, the kind of the lonely child idea that, that Stephen Moffat brought in, in The Girl in the Fireplace. And then he seems to be in some kind of orphanage, doesn't he, in, in Listen, when, uh, when they visit that. Um, it, but it just makes it very sort of um, prosaic and mundane, doesn't it, to have him uh, sent off to school with a packed lunch <laughs> his first day at the academy. Right, the new adventures definitely went a different direction as regards to the Doctor's yeah, childhood. Yeah, with uh, stories like Lungbar and things like that, yeah. Where the Doctor as a child yeah. is still a grown man. Yeah, it's... Um... <laughs> so yeah, so that, that's something that we know that uh, that could have been in potentially uh, an 80s or 90s version of the book that uh, that isn't in this one. One of the more unique things about the Stayward adaptation is that it really doesn't take place in the Doctor Who universe per se. It does not have the breadth of continuity details that Scoots mm-hmm. put into his fan version. Stayward pretty much writes his book as taking place only in the yes. Stayward verse. So the only continuity references are to his own stories. I have the Kindle version, so I'm able to do a word search. The word paraleptals actually appears in this book more than the word Daleks. Can you believe that? That, that surprises it, I mean, I noticed it was in there a lot, but it surprises me that it's in there more than the word Daleks. That's <laughs> actually not true. That's an exaggeration. <laughs> but the word Terra appears nine or ten times 
which doesn't make any sense. Number one, because paralepsals aren't in this story. Number two, they were only ever in one story in the first place, so who cares? But the only reason it's there is because Sayward invented them. So all the continuity references here are to his own fiction. Ah, there we go. So the word paralepsals appears six times in the book, which is still six times too many. Or maybe five times too many to be charitable. Yeah, I found that the uh, the the leptos, It's it's as though they are the the nearest neighbors to humanity um, in the way that the the draconians were in frontier in space. Like they're kind of the other major civilization. Um, I think I, I checked. It's about two thirds, two thousand years after frontier in space. But everything's leptos, isn't it? There's terraleptal poetry. There's a character who's trying to learn the terraleptal language. Um, they talk about getting transmissions from them and uh, and that kind of thing. So it's like they're a huge part of uh, huge part of the universe in this. Um, the only reference I found that wasn't from the Sayward era of Doctor Who, um, and he's from the new series, is Henrik's, the department store that Rose worked in, and there's two references to that. Um, but other than that, you've got um, tin clavic, which is the metal from the Awakening. Uh, and also from the visitation, that was what the terraleptals were mining when they were uh, uh, on the prison planet. That's right, yeah, that, that's why they got the scars and things, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, Voxnik, which is the alcoholic drink, which is it from Slipback and the novelization of The Twin Dilemma. Uh, and Spiel Snapes from Revelation of the Daleks. Uh, and all these, and these, uh, all these things uh, are referenced multiple times. Now, the space station that Davros is kept prisoner on is the same spaceship from Slipback, the Vipod Moor. Yeah, which is a really odd one because uh, in the... I don't know if you've seen the interview that Matthew Sweet um, did uh, with Eric Sayward um, about this book. Um, he says that was an accident. He didn't realize he's used, he's used the name before. Um, which is, I don't know, which is very strange when because he's put other references like, like Voxnik in there. Um, that he couldn't remember he'd used that, that ship before. But he also gives the history of the Vipod more in this book. So I'll have to do a cross-check and see if any of the characters he mentioned were also in Slipback. That doesn't sound fully believable to me. No, it seems strange. And it seems strange that his editor wouldn't have picked that up either. Um, but uh, we actually have a, a guest reading we can put in here. Um, so this is the, uh, the backstory of the Vipod more. Uh, so I guess reading this time is from Hayden Gribble of the Diddly Dumb podcast and he's author of the excellent memoir Child Out of Time, Growing Up with Doctor Who in the Wilderness Years uh, and there's a Trap One podcast where I talk to him about that book which I'll link to in the show notes Welcome aboard the Vipod Moor, the most hated facility in the solar system This had been scratched above airlock 3 of the Vipod Moor Who had written it was unknown the author of the message had also deliberately misspelled the word more. Why they had done this was another mystery. The only certain thing was that the entire crew of the 83 were unhappy and didn't want to be where they were. Things hadn't always been like this. In the old days, things had been calmer. In the old days, the Vipod Moore had been a battle cruiser that had fought bravely and with honour in the Hexacon Delta Zone Wars. In those days, 
the ship was known as the Fighting Brigand and was captained by Anthony Smith, a tough, rumbustious space captain, known for his ability to quaff vast amounts of Voxnik, the brew not unlike absinthe, known to have undone many a loyal and gallant man. After Smith's retirement, the ship was given to Velian Vipod Moore, poet, explorer, scientist and lover. It was a relationship with the Admiral's domestic droid, a creature of stunning beauty and utterly deep understanding that lost him everything. Found in the wrong time and a very wrong place, his punishment was to be sealed in his own vessel and left to drift in space. This he did for 97 years. After Felion's demise, the cruiser was recommissioned, this time as a proper prison ship and with an amazing lack of imagination, named the Vipod Moor. Aboard the ship was placed a very special prisoner, a creature so dangerous it could never be released. Although the exterior of the Vipod Moor looked bleak, the interior was even worse. The crew had almost entirely given up on any form of procedure, maintenance or discipline. Thank you very much to Hayden for that reading. Yes, thank you. Look out for his new book, Captain Random and the Eater of Souls, which is out on the 1st of October. So, yeah, that was a, a little bit of um, Douglas Adams-y type writing there from Eric Sayward, which yeah, he's toned down a lot from his novelizations of, of Slipback and The Twin Dilemma, hasn't he? Yeah, The Twin Dilemma novelization was definitely more Adams-esque than the TV story. Which is strange because Sayward's first novelization, The Visitation, was very traditional and very gritty. And so was his novelization of Attack of the Cybermen to a lesser extent. Mm-hmm. His style seems to get a little more frivolous as time goes by. Yeah, it's it's all this this he's he's toned it back down, but there's a couple of bits. There's 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 the bit we've just heard. Um, and then that when the the ship comes under attack and he's describing the the, the low impact torpedoes, and then there's the weird sort of backstory about a consignment of these torpedoes got mixed up with a consignment of jam or something, and they jam was delivered to a war zone, but it, uh, everyone died of obesity, so it, it kind of had the same effect. Um, it, it sort of didn't quite land, but it, it seemed like it was going for that same kind of humour. If Resurrection of the Daleks hadn't been on TV, that might be funny, but it just comes out of left <laughs> field, considering how serious the TV story is. Yeah, it's a total bloodbath, isn't it? Um, <laughs> yeah. um, something that, that struck me um, about the, the novel coming out now in particular in, in 2019, um, I was reading the, uh, you know, the About Time uh, books, sort of reference books about Doctor Who? Yes, I have... Uh, few of those. I was reading the entry on, on Resurrection of the Daleks, and um, it, this is skipping to the end of the story a little bit, but uh, they're discussing how in that, you know, the Daleks say that they've got duplicates sort of placed in key positions around the world, and the Doctor just kind of hand waves that away by saying, oh, well, they're all unstable anyway. Uh, so in about time, Lawrence Miles and Tat would say that this this isn't kind of setting up a sequel, it's, it's a comment on the state of the world in 1984. Um, so the the Davison volume of About Time came out in, 19, in 2005, um, and they say, more than any other time in living memory, those who ran the Western world were perceived as being close to insane, so the description of the duplicates as less than stable seems carefully chosen. 
so it seems like we're very much in that situation again now in the Western world. Um, so it seems like that would have been an interesting angle to take with this book. But he doesn't, which makes me wonder if that was the intention in the script, as as Miles and Wood suggest. There was one. There was one reference towards the end of the book that I thought was a very apt description of Donald Trump. But compared to what was going on in 1984, I think Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher are stark raving sane compared mm-hmm. to who's in charge now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so if. if if, as they you know, speculate, the, the, the script back in the 80s was a comment on that, it's a really fertile ground at the moment, isn't it, to, um, to suggest that uh, you know, the current crop of leaders are actually Dalek duplicates who've, um, who've become unstable and, uh, and can't stand the confusion in their minds. I just found the doctor's insult to Davros from the end of the story when he's trying to assassinate Davros and of course loses his nerve and doesn't do it Mm -hmm. but he says your conversation is utterly predictable you're like a deranged child always talking of revenge killing and destruction well that summarizes the current head of government in the United States pretty well yeah especially after yesterday's uh, tweet suggesting that Bill Clinton was responsible for the death of somebody who was in federal custody today under Trump's charge. So, speaking of derangement. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, deranged child is um, is pretty good, isn't it? Well, every time he visits London, and you've probably seen this in the news, there's a huge um, kind of inflatable um, baby Trump. So it's Trump in a nappy, uh, clutching an iPhone that, uh, that that sort of floats above all the anti-Trump protests whenever he's in, uh, whenever he's in this country. <laughs> I will be arriving in London two weeks from today, so hopefully that is on display somewhere for me to look at. But other than that, I didn't find the book to be very topical. It just seemed more like Sayward was doing his own thing. He wasn't making any overt reference to Brexit or Make America Great Again or even referencing much of the actual world stage in 1984. There's no references that I could find to Reagan or Thatcher or any of the other Michigas that was going on back then. Or say we're just making himself laugh and entertaining himself more than it was a cutting political commentary. At least that was my take on the book. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, yeah exactly the same. I, I think, um, I think he, he maybe kind of missed an opportunity, really, to, uh, to comment on that. Um, and we know his successor, Andrew Cartmel, would have uh, would have made much more, um, uh, you know, used that much more politically. Uh, yes, the Happiness Patrol being a particular bit of unsubtlety. Yeah, there was uh, apparently in his job interview with with John Nathan Turner, though he said uh, something like, you know, what would you like to do with Doctor Who, uh, and he said bring the government down, uh, which I think is partly what got him the job. Well, and it kind of worked because I believe Margaret Thatcher left office right around the time of survival. Yeah, it would have been would have been around then, I think. Yeah, uh, maybe yeah. a year later or so. Yeah. Thank you, Andrew Cartmel. So, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, we just need him to uh, to do something about Boris Johnson now. <laughs> and then come to the United States and do something about the other fellow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
so one of the things I did sort of notice about this book, um, it's probably something you'd more closely associate with, with Sayward's predecessor, um, is that kind of theme of entropy, um, the, the, the setting on earth of, of Shad Thames. It's, uh, it's a really run-down area, it's abandoned. The Doctor talks about how it used to be, you know, kind of a really bustling, busy area. Um, the Vipod Moor, the ship that, that Davros is imprisoned on, is, is, there's a big deal made of how run-down that is, and the, the weapons and defence systems have just been left to decay. Um, these uh, In the TV episode, you've got, like, the officers are on the bridge just smoking, aren't they? And... Uh, <laughs> Right. And there's basically no discipline or anything. And even the Daleks themselves uh, are not the the power that they once were. They they've been sort of nearly wiped out by the Mavellans. They've gone into hiding to try and escape from the plague. Um, so he's got got that sort of um, Christopher H. Bidmead sort of uh, you know entropy kind of idea running through it. Everything's a bit past its best, isn't it? And the Daleks are reliant on humans, mm. which is where Sayward's character Lytton comes into play. Yeah, and I suppose Tegan's relationship as well is is uh, with the Doctor and, and travelling in, in that lifestyle. That's the other thing that's uh, that's sort of deteriorated. Right, and because the events of the story were so brutal, and because the body count is so high and absolute, that's what sickens her and causes her to leave. Mm. Although Sayward, of course, spins that in a different direction for the book, which sort of undercuts the horror of the episode. But there you go. Yeah. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, Tegan's seen some some pretty uh, pretty rough stuff <laughs> up until now, hasn't she? I don't think there's anything in here. I mean, she sees her auntie killed in in Logopolis, um, and then in Warriors of the Deep, um, everybody but the Tardis crew die as well, don't they? Uh, there was one survivor in Warriors of the Deep. Was there? It's a while since I've watched that one. Uh. Bulick, who was the base security guard, he survives, but he survives off screen. Ah, right. So it's kind of mute, but there is one survivor. Yeah. I suppose in this you've got the the bit where she's kind, well, not really responsible for, but um, she she shouts for the, the guy when she's trying to escape, uh, the guy with the metal detector down on the shore, and that sort of draws him into events and he's uh, he's killed, isn't he? That was one of the few bits of the book that actually landed for me, because it's just straight-up horror, and Sayward is not making it funny or mm. making a joke about it. So in the book, he's wearing his headphones, and he's looking for you know, scrap metal or artifacts or whatever, and he turns out to be friends with the homeless guy who was killed at the very beginning of the story. Yeah. But he has his back turned, and he has the headphones on, and he doesn't know that Tegan is behind him shouting for help. And then Linton's two policemen kill him, and Tegan gets a very good line in, which I'm trying to find now, but the line is to the extent of he was killed because of a cry that he never actually heard. Mm which I thought was a really good line. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's one of the things that uh, that helps to, to to make up a mind. Yeah. So there was a lot of death on TV that was very memorable that did not make its way into the novelization. Mm-hmm. 
So the character in part one who is affected by Linton's poison gas and his face and his hands start to dissolve on screen. Memorably disgusting moment. Not in the book. Yeah, um, it, it's odd that. And, and they, they even give him a bit more story. I think he's called Seton, isn't he, in the book? Where he's actually been working for the Daleks and had sabotaged the airlock that they used to board the ship. Uh, but then he's just shot um, in the end, which is is like loads of characters, isn't it? In this, uh, they're all shot. It's, it sort of robs him of that really memorable, um, really memorable death. Because they've even set up the same kind of thing that not all of the, not all the people who are defending the airlock have got the gas masks and things. Right, but on TV, he doesn't have a name. No, he and Osborne are sent to destroy Davros. Mm. And on TV, he's affected by the poison gas, so Osborne shoots him down, and then she herself is immediately killed by Lytton, mm. or whoever. But here, he reveals himself as a traitor. There was no sabotage on TV, but this is a new plot thread. He outs himself to her, he kills her, and then, of course, Lytton shoots him, knowing that he's a traitor, but not wanting to pay off. So he's immediately shot down. But there's no scene of the poison gas getting to him and his face falling off. So it's clever in the book, but it's not as horrifying as on TV. Yeah. Yeah. What did you think of the um, the little sort of, I don't know what you call them, little kind of declarative summaries that um, that Sayward puts at the end of a lot of the, the, the chapters or the paragraphs? So these, I like them, actually. Yeah. I like the way that he was playing with the font and with the prose and with the spacing. There's uh, there's a couple of the I, I noted down that I, I liked the uh, the greatest time lord of them all was having a very bad day. Yes, and then also the exterminate, 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 which is set off in separate font, at least in the Kindle version. Right, I I'm not sure about that one. I don't. It doesn't ring a bell. Um, the uh, so yeah, there's a, a lot of them. He sort of describes the action. It says uh, so. He's like for Sergeant Stein, the Battle of Shad Thames wasn't going at all well. Um, Yes. My favourite one was the one about uh, when Styles and some of the other characters are trying to access the self-destruct on the Vipod Moor, and they realise, well, it, it, there's an odd bit there because uh, when they're trying to get into it, one of the characters says to Styles, oh, this could be the last thing we ever do. Um, and that one ends with, it was very sad. Um, but then yes. the next time you return to the character, Styles has a moment where she realises that this could be the last thing she ever does. Um, I think somebody just pointed that out to you just before. <laughs> Why are you only realizing it now? And, uh, on TV, that was dialogue for Rula yeah. Lenska. But in the book, it's only part of her internal thought process. It is not dialogue. Yeah. Uh, the, the last one of these I noted down was, if Daleks could smile, this might have been the occasion to do so. But they couldn't, so they didn't. <laughs> the Daleks are much more personality here. There's the... They all have different names. So there's the Supreme Dalek, and then there's the Alpha through Gamma Daleks. And the Alpha Dalek and the Supreme Dalek do not get along. One of them is very sarcastic to Lytton. Yeah. That was a nice new development. I like that. Yeah. Because at first, I, I, because I've only recently been watching Evil of the Daleks, uh, or not well, watching as much as I could, but listening to, and you've got Alpha, Beta, and Omega Daleks in that. But it's not a reference to that at all, is it? Because they're the, the, the sort of the renegade ones that get the human factor. 
that start the civil war, whereas here it's more sort of a hierarchy, isn't it? Seems like. Right. And there's another one at the end of chapter seven. There's a, again, set off a different plot. It seemed the war of the Daleks was going mm-hmm. very well. So there's Sayward playing with the formatting again. Yeah, so the, the, the way he does that with the with the Daleks, he talks about the um, the Dalek Supremes a couple of times where he describes it as his dialogue as oozing um, and, and being sort of witty and sarcastic and uh, get the idea he's a bit more of a, a, a calculating Dalek and but the yeah, the Alpha Dalek doesn't doesn't like him at all, does he? <laughs> no. And then, as on TV, you have Davros, who has very different plans than the Daleks, and immediately starts recruiting his own army. Yeah, it's uh, the it's it's because the one thing that everyone says about the story on TV or here, I guess, is that they've got quite a lot going on. The Daleks haven't they? For like you know, a, a, quite a beaten race that are surviving on the fringes, trying to escape from this plague. They're trying to resurrect Davros invade the Earth and invade Gallifrey, uh, all as part of this same same plan. And they've already duplicated Tegan and Turlow on television, and of course they try to do the same with the Doctor himself, but of course Stein interrupts, so the Doctor's duplicate is yeah. never programmed. You would have thought that after 35 years of thinking about the TV version, Stayward might have all yeah. that together and explained a little more what was going on. So as much as I enjoy watching the TV story, at the beginning you have all these escaped slaves who break out of the Shad Thames. And you have Stein and you have Galloway, who were two escaped officers. Lytton and his two policemen then come to Shad Thames, murder all the escaped prisoners with machine guns, and then beam them back to the Dalek ship in the time corridor. Stein and Galloway are the only survivors. Galloway goes back in the warehouse, tries to find the time corridor that he's just escaped from, and is killed by somebody who comes through the time corridor, leaving Stein upset and alone. Stein then finds the doctor. The doctor nurses Stein back into health. The Doctor takes Stein in the TARDIS to the Dalek ship, and Stein immediately reveals himself as a Dalek agent and Lytton's second-in-command, or commanding officer, depending on how you read the scenes between them, which makes no sense of the opening of the book or the opening of the TV story, because what is he doing with the escaped slaves? Where were they escaping from? Who was Galloway? And if Stein was Lytton's second-in-command all along, why was he part of the slave break? Was he undercover? What was going on? All of that stuff is crying out for explanation. And on TV, you just take it because these are some memorable images early in the story. But it still makes no sense. And in the book, it makes no sense. And there's never any explanation. If Stein is working with Lytton the whole time, why is he escaping with Galloway, and why is he so sad when Galloway dies? Yeah, I, I took it that he's part of the plan to trap the Doctor. 
But it doesn't make any sense because, in the sense that the Doctor isn't around to see the escape um, or to see Galloway die or anything like that. He only see he only meets Stein after all that. Right, and the Doctor was already caught in the time corridor himself. So why did Stein need to be in it? Yeah, yeah, I suppose to. Uh, well, that's yeah. To to sort of to, to I guess eventually to bring him back to the Dalek ship, and that's another difference in the book, isn't it? That the Doctor knows when he's in the TARDIS that the Daleks are behind the time corridor, whereas in the TV story he doesn't know until he sees a Dalek in the warehouse. But in the book, even though he's aware that the time corridor is Dalek technology, he still gets to Earth and goes, "Oh, what's the time corridor doing here? Who built it?" Yeah, and he's still surprised when the Daleks appear. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, but yeah, because I think the thing that Lytton says is that when they uh, he sort of argues about why they were using machine pistols, um, and he says, "Oh, we've wasted loads of specimens," and you never find out what they're specimens for. We know that they're all taken from different periods of history, but we don't learn what 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 exactly they're for, do we? Because because my first thought was, "Oh, maybe they're." It's something to do with them trying to find a cure for the Dalek plague, but the plague only affects, or the Mavellan plague, but it only affects Daleks. So you wouldn't have thought they'd have much use for humans to test it on, let alone humans that they've gone to all the effort of collecting from different time periods. And to borrow a line from the discontinuity guide, the Daleks hiding the virus on Earth yeah. is kind of like the Allies hiding the atomic bomb in Berlin. Yes. <laughs> if you don't want to leave the one thing which destroys you in the hands of your enemies. Just 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 saying. Yeah. Yeah, th- those bits are uh yeah. Like you say, he's had a long time to uh, to to work those out. The story uh, logic is perhaps not improved in the novelization. No. No, because uh, I suppose what and why would Lytton carry on the pretense as well that there's been an escape if it was a, when he gets back to the ship um, and be angry about the fact that they've had to kill these uh, these specimens and what kind of weapon they've used if it was all part of ensnaring the doctor he'd, he'd arrive back and go right we've done that Stein's in place to you know to make sure the doctor doesn't go anywhere or to, to make sure he eventually makes it to the ship and on television at least in Resurrection the Doctor and Lytton really don't get any scenes together. There's no, no indication the Doctor knows who Lytton is. Now, in Attack of the Cybermen, of course, Lytton becomes the main character of the story, and he and the Doctor sort of kind of become allies. In the novelization of Resurrection, we learn two things. So first we learn that Sayward is now working on a graphic novel of Lytton's life, which I'm not mm-hmm. sure that fascinates me. But the Doctor also knows who Lytton is even before the story opens in reference to him running a jazz club somewhere in London, which is strange. Yeah, um, I th- and I think that's it, it only seems to be there, doesn't it, to, to solve that problem of, of how does the Sixth Doctor know so much about Lytton? Uh, right. You know, in, in the later one. But yeah, I suppose maybe we're going to see that, that backstory of the, uh, of the jazz club. Um, I suppose I don't know what the what the scope of the the Lytton graphic novel is going to be. Whether it's he's going to have the rights to the Doctor and and whatnot. Whether the Doctor is going to be visiting Lytton, running a jazz club, or whether it is because presumably he owns the rights to Lytton. It's just going to be about about his backstory. 
And I'm not positive that I'm going to be a top customer for that. Maybe I'll no. look for the reviews. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it'll take 30 years to appear as well. You know. <laughs> I'm not positive I'll be here in 35 years, but <laughs> if 80-year-old Jason is still able to read, maybe I'll check it out then. Yeah. In the year 2054. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure would won't still be around by then. I'm sure he will be. <laughs> uh, so, uh, now, the book was not all negative for me. No. There were a lot of individual lines that I liked. So, for example, when Davros wakes up, he smiles cheerlessly. It was his first argument in 90 years, and he intended to enjoy it. That was pretty neat. I like that. Yeah. And there's also a whole travelogue of the TARDIS at the beginning of the chapter where the Doctor brings Stein to the Dalek ship. Sayward kind of gives a room-by-room summary of the TARDIS. It talks about its kitchens and its robot chef mm-hmm. and its cinema. And there are three movies always showing. Yes. Pretty good movies, too. Chimes of Midnight, The Seahawk, and The Third Man. See, I've only seen The Third Man out of these movies. Um and that was only very recently. It was on BBC Two a couple of weekends ago. So I thought, well, if it's good enough for Doctor Who, it's good enough for me. So I'll watch it. And it, I really enjoyed it. It was brilliant. And The Seahawk is directed by Michael Curtis, who also directed Casablanca. Ah, right. And I think every line of Casablanca has already been quoted in a Terrence Dix novel somewhere or other. So Casablanca is heavily interwoven into the Doctor Who universe. Right. So did you think that there was anything uh, in those movies that influenced Resurrection of the Daleks? I was, I was sort of watching The Third Man with, you know, sort of half an eye on that. Possibly in terms of espionage. Yeah. I, I thought the, the, the very end of The Third Man, when the, the, the characters uh, deciding whether to shoot Harry Lyme, sorry if that's a spoiler uh, for anyone that hasn't seen it, but it is like a 70-year-old movie, so... <laughs> <laughs> um, Sorry. it reminded me a little bit of, of it was the Doctor's Dilemma about shooting Davros um, and also there's a cat in it now I haven't seen the third man in about 10 years so you're going to have to mm. refresh my memory does the cat in the third man have the gift of speech it doesn't no um that's fairly unique to the novelization of Resurrection of the Daleks. <laughs> and the doctor himself, when he hears this cat talking, sort of believes that he's hallucinating. Yeah, he's not sure, is he? So it's, it's towards the end of the book, when the doctor rides the time corridor back to the warehouse, he's accompanied by a cat. There's no description of the cat. Earlier on in the story, we're introduced to Sir Runcible. Um, a black cat that lives aboard the Vipod Moor. He's described as being oblivious to what's happening, whereas this cat seems like it would probably know what was happening. There was a cat in the television story, The Cat of the Warehouse, which is a decoy scare for the Callan Newton. Yeah. And that cat makes a brief appearance in the book as well, but Sir Runcible is unique to the novelization. Yeah. I thought it was Sir Runcible who was following the Doctor to Earth, and I'm not sure why he was able to talk. No, that's what I took it to be, the, uh, the Sir Runcible and not the cat that was already in the warehouse. 
Um, because Resurrection of the Daleks is a very grim, gritty, uncompromising story. Yeah. <laughs> you don't normally associate a talking cat with grim or gritty or uncompromising. No, it's it's the because the doctor says um, something like um, about wearing a flak jacket, doesn't he? And the cat says, "If only they made them in my size." That's right. And then just runs off. What I'm thinking now that we're talking about it is maybe it's like Resolution, where you know the Dalek mutant um, took over the uh, the 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 character. The, the character that was an archaeologist, wasn't she, in that story, and could talk through her. <laughs> maybe there was a, a Dalek mutant knocking about aboard the ship after its casing had been blown up. And it took over Sir Runcible um, and brought him back to Earth in the time corridor. You have to wonder if this cat is going to make a reappearance in Stabler's novelization of Revelation of the Daleks. Yeah. Which takes place on a different planet and a different time zone and follows Davros later in his life cycle. Yeah, it seems like that's quite far in the future, doesn't it? Maybe there'll be a payoff. Yeah. Maybe. My other thought was maybe it's a Wifferdil. Now, was Sayward responsible for the Wifferdils, or was that only from the comics? I think it's only in the comics, but it's it's his era, isn't it? Apart from the references to Henrix and the Time War, this was mostly a book set only in Sayward's personal continuity. Mm. So I'm not sure he would have had the Wifferdils on the brain. No. But maybe in 35 years when the Lytton book comes out, we'll find yeah, out. Yeah. But, I mean, he maybe was uh, – maybe he had some say over the, uh, you know, the, the, the content of the Doctor Magazine comics. You know, if they uh, they sent him in for approval or something, which uh, maybe it would have uh, come to his attention. Well, I do know that JNT had some editorial control over the Target novelizations in the 80s. And he was able to nix certain things. Like, at the end of Full Circle, there was supposed to be an epilogue where the Styliner crashes on a new planet and the whole thing begins over again. But JNT had that cut out of the novelization. Ah, right. I think JNT had editorial control over this novelization, <laughs> he would have cut out a few things. Number one, the talking cat, and number two, the epilogue. That would never have gone by with tighter editorial control. Yeah, so there's a couple of changes to the end of the story, isn't there? Um one of them being that when, when Tegan tells the Doctor that she wants to no longer travel with him and the TARDIS takes off, in the TV story, she runs back into the room, doesn't she? Um, as though maybe she has changed her mind, but the TARDIS has already dematerialized, which doesn't happen here. She just watches it material, dematerialize. Right. And then the bit that is definitely not in the TV show is her walking out of the warehouse and over the bridge and it's starting to feel a little bit strange. Um, and the, well, the bit that it, And wondering why she had left the doctor as precipitately as she had, because she doesn't have a place to live. She's been away from Earth for three years. She's kind of wondering why she did that. Yeah, she's, she's getting a, bit, a little bit of confusion in her mind, isn't she? Where have I heard that expression before? <laughs> uh, not in this book. Um, so... The, and the police, the, the bit that is in the story, of course, is, is that Lytton rejoins his two policemen henchmen um, and, and they walk off and they see Tegan walking off and decide to follow her. 
Um, so as she's walking across the bridge, the mental confusion disappears and she suddenly feels incredibly strong and energized. And in order to escape the police, when she leaps over the bridge and lands on a passing boat underneath, uh, and manages to escape from them. So she somehow gains superpowers. Now you and I have different takes on what's happening mm-hmm. here. My impression was that she was now a Dalek duplicate. And if she's a Dalek duplicate, it means that the original Tegan is dead. Just like all the members of the bomb squad were killed before they were turned into mm-hmm. duplicates. So my impression is that the real Tegan had been killed off screen, which I'm not sure that's Eric Sayward's decision to make. But in the coda, Tegan wonders, even worse, had she been duplicated, because she's aware something strange is going on. So I thought that this was her Dalek duplicate and that she was having the same mental breakdown that Stein was having. And my thought is... Who believed this was a good idea? Now, you, Mark, have a different take on what's happening with Tegan and Dakota than I do. Well, there's a couple of options in, in the text, isn't there? Because as she's walking along, she wonders if she's a duplicate or she wonders if something's happened to her. She's she's sort of ingested something toxic um, from uh, like her encounter with the Daleks or by traveling through the time corridor. Because um, it says something about a, a Dalek ran into her or something. Which made me think that's like a reversal of um, of uh, the Dalek story from series one, where the Dalek gets something from Rose uh, when she touches it, um, and and it sort of, you know, somehow uh, takes on her morality and things like that from her DNA. Um, but yeah, there's. It, it, I felt like it, it leaves it open to interpretation that it could be that she's a duplicate, but it could be that something else has happened to her. That uh, well, I kind of thought you know, like the Fantastic Four. Maybe she's in the time corridor and some cosmic energy passed through her or something like that, and imbued her with superpowers. But well, this was the final novelization with Tegan yes. in it. There's only one other story left that has not been novelized. That's Revelation. That is not a Tegan story. So this is a dangling plot thread that, as far as we know, is never, ever, ever going to be resolved. So all it seems to want to do is irritate the fanboys, like myself. Well, I wondered if it was a bit of a pastiche of what they do in the modern series when a companion leaves. Um, and in the case of, uh, you know, sort of, uh, like, well, Rose and, and, and Martha to some extent, you know, but then definitely sort of Bill and Clara, they they leave the TARDIS with, with more abilities or powers than they than they originally had and then go off and have their own adventures which are sort of unseen but, but you know can kind of live on in the in the mind of the viewer but in those cases especially with Clara the entire episode was building up to that yes whereas here is kind of an afterthought and if you don't read the code it would never occur to you to realize that was happening and then that only works if you accept the theory that Tegan is now a superhero my theory is that she's a duplicate and the original Tegan is dead puts a much darker spin on things. It's Yeah, it's very grim, that, isn't it? Uh, and you have to wonder what editorial control would have allowed this to happen. Mm. Why did somebody want to do this to Tegan now, 35 years later, and what is the payoff going to be? Not only that, but... And I hate to sound like the most anodyne fanboy there is, 
But we already have enough hints from the Big Finish audios and the BBC books as to what happens to Tegan after she leaves the TARDIS. This stuff doesn't really fit into that. So they're all officially sanctioned media, but now you have officially sanctioned media giving different ideas as to what happens to Tegan after she leaves. Yeah, the the Big Finish one's quite dark as well, isn't it? What happens to it? I think there's a... I think it was maybe the first one that Janet Fielding did when she uh, when she came back to the character, and I think it's the fifth Doctor meeting an older version of Tegan. I think she's got like a brain tumour or something, hasn't she? Which uh, she thinks might have been caused by, you know, the various things that have happened to her while she was travelling with the Doctor. But she also forgives the Doctor at the mm-hmm. end, sort of. And then in the BBC books, it is hinted that she marries... Ian and Barbara's son, who became a pop star, Johnny Chess. Right, I'd forgotten about all that, yeah. Which, if she has become a superhuman or evil Dow duplicate, she's not marrying pop stars. (laughs) So, what is the point? And given that Steve Cole, who edited this book, was also the editor of the books where Tegan marries Johnny Chess, where's this going? And apart from being annoying, what's it there for? What's the point? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think she's she's probably got the mental strength to, you know, to break the the Dalek programming like Stein did. But, I mean, there's not really is there an indication that he's got superhuman strength? He does still manage to press the self destruct button after uh, being shot by Daleks, doesn't he? Right, but that's the only hint of it. And, of course, he also passes out from starvation earlier in the book. <laughs> yeah. So maybe he's not a superhuman after all. Yeah. Uh, in the book, uh, the, the doctor gives him jelly babies, doesn't he, that he's previously um, shoved in his ears to, to drown out some noise. <laughs> That's right. And one of the characters on board the space station, one of Dr. Stiles' assistants, is able to send a text message after she's been killed. Which is a very handy skill to have. I didn't get that bit. What was that? So, Mercer was the head of security on board the Vipod mm-hmm. Moor. And when Dr. Stiles was trying to activate the self-destruct, Mercer, who was a proper character yeah. on TV, was off with Turlo to try and find the time mm-hmm. card. As that's happening, they hear the explosion, meaning that the self-destruct failed, and Lytton has attacked... Dr. Stiles. Mercer took out his radio and tried to connect to Stiles, but there was no reply. Instead, there was a text message from Xena. Heavy attack. All us dead. Turlo supposed that this was not a time to comment on the sender's poor grammar. <laughs> There's a lot to unpack in that uh, short passage, but you have a dead person sending a text message, and you have Turlo snarking on a dead person's ground. <laughs> This is very comedic and surreal. Again, things you would never attach to the TV story no. itself. No, there's very little humor in it. And I don't, I'm not one of those guys who believes that the novelization has to be a slavish reproduction of the TV episode. Certainly with the original Target books, you had a lot of different variety. You had different books that would do different things to the TV mm. story. Donald Cotton's books always went off in different directions. They were written as, you know, 
collections of letters or as Homeric myth or as uh, newspaper articles. And his were a lot more funny than the underlying TV stories. Different writers would do different things. What Sayward does to Resurrection is about as strange as any adaptation of any other TV mm. story. It changes most of the dialogue from the original. It follows the basic plot beats, but it does very different things in a very different way. And has a sort of sneering, almost self-herotic tone. And some of his vocabulary choices are, again, Douglas Adams-esque. You have the egregious policeman. You have Davros's inevitable leather jacket. Word choices that almost make fun of the original story. And then, of course, you have the talking cat. And you have whatever's going on with Tegan and Dakota. So I don't mind a novelization being surreal, but it should have some sort of internal consistency to it. I think my biggest complaint about Resurrection, as much as I enjoyed a lot of the text and some of the humor and a lot of the prose, there's no internal consistency or internal logic to it. There's a lot of strange things going on, and it doesn't really tie together. Yeah. I don't know if that's me being an angry fanboy or being an objective critic, but it was a very, very yeah. strange book. Very yeah, I agree with that. Well, did you think he was trying to name-check a lot of Dalek stories in it as well? I only noticed it's about halfway through, but it seemed like within the space of a few pages, we'd had somebody refer to the power of the Daleks. I think, I'm think i sure the Daleks' master plan was in there, and Destiny of the Daleks as well. I did notice Daleks' master plan. I may have missed Destiny. I'm sure, and I, I think that's in the TV episode as well. I think Davros says something about Destiny of the Daleks. Um, and somebody says something about the power of the Daleks. And then, but I, was, I think I was about halfway through the book by then. I thought, oh, I wonder if um, they've, uh, you know, they've mentioned a few of the other ones as well. But, uh, but I hadn't. Uh, I, I thought Sayward was being so busy talking about his own material that I wasn't sure he was going to take the time to reference all the other Dalek stories from other authors. Yeah, because because Styles and Galloway are both names from previous Dalek right. stories, aren't they? Which I think is a deliberate. Styles uh, was Day of the Daleks, and Galloway was Death of the Daleks. Yeah, both Pertwee ones actually, aren't they? Yeah. That's right. Uh, what did you think of the the? Uh, we touched on it before the description of the the TARDIS interior. This is this is two books that we've discussed um, in a row where we've had. Um, writers taking advantage of sort of infinite budget that you can have of a book. Um, Tom Baker and James Goss in Scratchman have some fun with uh, describing the TARDIS interior when um, Sarah Jane Smith is being chased through the TARDIS by a scarecrow. Uh, and then um, Sayward, Sayward's much more about the Doctor's taste, isn't he? His, his taste in sort of movies and art and literature. It's kind of fancy architecture and classical music. I would definitely spend time in the TARDIS cinema and, of course, the gymnasium. So that was a nice, yeah, that was a nice addition. And a I like that. little thing about you're not allowed any snacks or drinks in the cinema. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we, we talked a little bit about the, the, the Daleks sort of uh, snacking at each other. Um, there's a scene where the, the Alpha Dalek 
resent the Supreme Daleks order not to just exterminate Turlu. Uh, he says, you know, sort of let him wander around for a bit first. And the Alpha Dalek thinks of the Dalek Supreme as a feat. Which is not really a word that you apply to Daleks. It isn't. And it's a word that um, I think I first heard when I was a kid watching Highlander, um, which I absolutely loved. It's, it's still probably one of my top ten favorite movies. Um, and there's a bit in that where the Kurgan calls Sean Con- Connery's character, uh, Ramirez, an effete snob. Um, so as a kid, I looked it up, and the only definition that I found was um, it sort of means old and worn out. Um, so it was probably an old dictionary that I had then, like an old family one sort of thing. So for years, I always thought that was what it meant, like the only meaning. But then it just never seems to make sense in the context that you hear it in. Um but yeah, it's it's kind of when you look uh, when I've looked more recently, there's the, the other definitions are affected and over refined, which fits for Ramirez's character in Highlander, um, but also kind of weak and effeminate, which I guess is what the implication here is. The Alpha Daleks like an alpha male, um, and and sees the uh, the Dalek Supreme as a feat because it's uh, it doesn't have the kind of death or glory bloodlust that that the Alpha Daleks wants to see. Uh, it doesn't not into strategy and planning and spying on Turlu. Just thinks it's a, it, he is a human. Um, it's one of the Doctor's companions. Just kill him. And for Eric Stewart himself, this is not the first time that he's used the word defeat. He put it into the script for the Twin Dilemma, and that's how the Sixth Doctor uh-huh. refers back to the Fifth. Harry says, "Doctor was sweet." I don't remember that. And Colin Baker goes, "Sweet defeat." I don't. I didn't remember that. Right. So that was my association with the word. Yeah. And then you have the moment where the Alpha Dalek, or maybe it was the Supreme Dalek, threatens Lytton with what's going to happen if he fails in a particular mission. And Lytton goes, you're going to exterminate me. Yeah. And the Dalek goes, no, you will be kept alive in a cryogenic chamber. It will be conscious forever. And Lytton thinks that the Dalek is being ironic or some other very undalicky word. I thought it was nice giving the Daleks personality like that. Otherwise, they're just, you know, robots. Yeah. And again, that, work. that being kept alive and, and conscious in the uh, in suspended animation is what's, what's happened to Davros as well, isn't it? So I guess it's, uh, you know, they, they kind of got an idea of what, what, what punishment that would be. Right. He references uh, that later on. Yeah. Just before I said Turlu's a human, obviously, I know that he isn't. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> just, uh, actually that was an interesting thing the um, Tellurian both the Doctor and the Daleks refer to humans as Tellurians in this which I, I think from memory is only in the two Doctors isn't it which was also an Eric Stayward script edited story yeah um, it's the it's what the Andrigams always refer to humans as but here it seems like it's a it's a wider definition that um that they all use, but it's, it's it's odd coming from the doctors. I mean, I don't think he says it out loud, but he, he sort of thinks of it um, as humans as Tullerians, which just seems odd association with that character, given how much time he spent on Earth and you know talks about humanity and Homo sapiens and all that kind of stuff. And given that all three of the movies that are playing in the TARDIS are 1940s Earth films, yeah, yeah, that he would just say humans, not Tullerians, yeah, right. Um, but yeah, and again the Daleks as well. 
it's uh, yeah, it's it bits like that sort of jar a little bit, don't they? Because then they're not um, they're not widely used in the in the wider context of Doctor Who. They they are just from the Sayward era. Like I said, this book takes place in the Saywardverse rather than mm. the Doctor Who universe. So for an alternate take, I think the Paul Skews novelization is much more traditional and faithful to the story and has a lot more internal consistency. Mm-hmm. If I had to choose between the two, I think Sayward is the better master of prose. But if you just want to read a novelization of the story, I would start with Skews. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting that we've got both, and it'll be very interesting to see if there's any, like you say, if there's any payoff with what happens to Tegan, um, and whether we'll ever see Sir Runcible again. I'm not holding my breath, but the Revelation novelization will come out soon enough, and they will find out. Yes. Yeah. Um, although the uh, the the interview that uh, Matthew Sweet does as well. Eric Saywood says he would uh, he would consider writing another one if uh, if asked. So uh, maybe he does have something at the back of his mind. The new adventures of Tegan. Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, I think the other thing that you mentioned uh, offline was uh, there's a reference in the Sarah Jane adventures to what happens to Tegan, isn't there? Uh, but I can't quite remember what it was. She was uh, defending the rights of the Australian Aborigines. That's right. Yeah. Uh, which, I mean, she might be defending it as a, as a superhero. Could be, could be. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody should ask Janet Fielding at the next convention what she makes of all this. Yeah. Yeah, if, she, if she's read it. I don't, I'm not sure who's done the audiobook for this one, actually. I know Rula Lenski did the audiobook for The Happiness Patrol. I don't know if she was available for this one as well. That's very good. That's a, that's one that I highly recommend. I am also, by the way, this is off the boards, but I'm listening this week to the novelization audiobook of Warrior's Gate, which is the original manuscript by Steve Gallagher from his original version of the story, which is quite longer than your usual target book, and it is much different from the final TV story. And that is read by John Colshaw, who's very talented with his impersonations. Yeah. So of the two novelizations that I've been reading this week, this version of Resurrection kind of compa- kind of pales in comparison to Warrior's Gate. Yeah, uh, John Colshaw did The Five Doctors as well, didn't he? Which I haven't got, but um, it's one I'd like to get at some point. Um, and I think it right, was- and both novelizations diverge quite significantly from what we saw on television. But again, mm. Gallagher's book is much more internally consistent. There's more of a logic to it. And no talking cats. Yeah. <laughs> talking lions, but no talking cats. Yeah. Yeah, jo- uh, John Colshaw, I think the uh, his impression of the Brigadier on the, the Five Doctors audiobook, that's what recommended him to Big Finish to, to be their new Brigadier for their Third Doctor range. And his impersonations of Clifford Rose and especially Tom Baker in the Warriors Gate CD are phenomenal. Yeah, really, really good. He's yeah, he's sort of famous here for his, uh, his he does a sketch show. I mean, you might have seen bits of this on YouTube. Um, uh, a lot of his early stuff that he did, he, he did a lot of Tom Baker stuff um, in his 
uh, in his, his his show is called Dead Ringers. Um, as a combination right. of sketches, but also he would he would phone people and uh, or he'd be out and about on the streets and uh, uh, and just going up to people dressed as Tom Baker and doing the voice. Uh, and there's, there's loads of great ones of those. I think there's one where he phones Sylvester McCoy as well, uh, which is very funny. Um, and he was at the Big Finish Day I went to in June. Um, so really funny. He's, he's obviously a massive fan. I think you get that from from some of the old Dead Ringers stuff. All the um, all the references are absolutely spot on for, for sort of Doctor Who stuff. Um, uh, I mean, the novelization for Resurrection is narrated on audiobook by Terry Malloy, which makes uh, a lot of sense. Right. And Nicholas, Nicholas Briggs does the Dalek voices. Yeah. The same way that John Leeson is the voice of Canine in Warrior's Gate. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Terry Malloy's done quite a few of these, hasn't he? Uh, uh, audiobooks as well, I think. Yes, he's pretty yeah. good. The second best Davros. Yes. <laughs> this is probably the longest conversation that I will ever have over the rest of my life about resurrection of the Daleks. Cool. Well, thank you very much. Uh, it has been a pleasure discussing this one with you and uh, seeing what you made of the, the talking cats and the superpowered Tegan. I'm not sure I made anything of them, but <laughs> 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 thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. Uh, no problem at all. I will um, put a link in the show notes to the, the review that you mentioned um, at the top of the episode. And where can everyone find you on Twitter? I am on WordPress at Doctor Who Novels, DR Who Novels, and I am on Twitter at DR Who Novels as well. You can find me on Twitter. I am at Quark McMalleth. And you can follow the podcast at Trap1 underscore. Um, please consider... Subscribe to the podcast and leave in a review, if you would, wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Good night.